stream. And again, I'm from New York City, um, and was very, you know, right next to this building. And we get in there, and my teacher at the time was an old school, very, it's like Lieutenant Colonel, Infantry Lieutenant Colonel, so he was, you know, kind of grew up in like the Vietnam, post-Vietnam times, uh, chemistry teacher. So he's this kind of grizzled old hard charging dude. Um, and he's got the TV on, we were sitting there watching. And, I'm watching these, finding out this is a major terrorist attack, and the other plane had just, or both buildings were hit by now. We sat there and watched as the, you know, the first tower went down. Um, and he's, I remember him saying to us, he's like, your all life have just changed dramatically. Um, that said, we have to lab, we have to execute. I'm Ryan Miller, U.S. Army Captain retired. I'm a cannabis entrepreneur and advocate, and you're listening to the Heads and Tails Podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete's story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life, you can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. This week I'm interviewing Ryan Miller, who's a medically retired captain from the U.S. Army uh, due to severe wounds that he received in Iraq in 2012. Uh, these uh, wounds ultimately led to the amputation of his left leg. And after becoming dependent on opiate painkillers throughout his recovery, he now advocates for cannabis use as an alternative. Um, Ryan graduated with a degree in nuclear engineering from the United States Military Academy at West Point, which is I can't even really wrap my mind around that major. Uh, and then he went on to earn a master's degree in both business administration and public policy from Harvard. So definitely in the presence of a very smart individual. Um, and, <laughs> on paper, at least. No, it's, 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 it's the course of this discussion. I don't know. You and your, uh, your listeners might change their opinion on that. <laughs> no, I, I felt the immediate connection to you. So I, I met Ryan mm -hmm. um, at the... World Medical Cannabis Conference and Expo in Pittsburgh when I was uh, interviewing Evan Britton. And I, I went over to his booth. I'm, I'm always drawn to camo. I always like camo, anything American flag and camouflage. So I was like, oh, I, I saw his booth, um, his camo booth. And I went up to him and we were talking. Uh, so that, and I felt an immediate connection with you. And we talked about the story and how you know uh, Ben Harrow and all these things. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I'm excited to have you on the show. Uh, so Ryan, can you start off by talking about like, you know, what sports you played growing up? I think I saw you played football at, at some point. Yeah, so I, uh, I mean, I played, I think, football, baseball, did, did the whole, you know, ran the whole gamut, grew up in a, uh, it's funny, I tell people where I lived in Staten Island, um, you know, kind of very suburban, the small town part, well, at the time in New York City, I mean, even, even where I live, uh, definitely not, you know, that's kind of changed. But when I grew up, it was still pretty cool. Uh, you know, everybody had a driveway, so the street was empty, so you can play sports there. Uh, so our world revolved around three things, um, uh, video games, sports, and, and wrestling, usually w like WWF, WCW, and everything. Okay. Uh, I always do when I talk to people, talking that kind of sums up the childhood. So, you know, played everything growing up, both in the street and then organized, uh, but I wound up settling uh, baseball and football, and then by the time I started high school, I uh, really just focused on football and became my kind of, uh, my, my, my real love uh, and passion. And really how I define myself uh, through high school and a, a, a very strong high school of uh, overachievers in New York City. Cool. So what position did you play in football? I was a fullback and a linebacker. Oh, me too. Uh, I like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the great playing, playing both sides of the ball, the, the you know, tough guy or in me wannabe fake tough guy position. 
Uh, although I was, I, I do like towards, towards the end of high school because we really didn't have much. Uh, um, I, I want to say I don't want to knock my team. I mean, this was a team where uh, uh, this is a school where it's, it's about 600 kids and a third of them go to like Ivy League caliber schools. Okay. So we're more focused on academics. So we might not have that much backfield talent. So I was proud to have been a, a running fullback. Um, uh, got a lot of carries and, uh, and for a big kind of uh, goofy um i guess like taller skinnier uh even though i was a decent size in high school about 200 pounds i mean still kind of awkwardly running um uh white dude i was i held my own cool i think in the uh in the new york city uh high school football league did you ever <laughs> battle with any injuries uh from playing football you want the truth no i missed one i, I never had to uh, i'm very proud to say they never had to stop the clock and again i never played in like you know college or beyond or anything other than actually intramural football West Point, which was full pads, which was, was kind of cool. What? Um, but you know, yeah, yeah, we can get into that. But, um, uh, we, uh, yeah, I never, in fact, I actually had a compression sprain of my spine, which goodness knows how close, uh, that could have came to being real bad. Um, actually I haven't, I'm going to have to relive a, a, just a quick high school football glory moment right now, or maybe not glory moment. We were playing the city champion again, these overall city champion from like the year before Kennedy High School, uh, they're out of the Bronx. Um, I went to Stuyvesant High School at a, in near in Manhattan. Uh, again, so a very uh, huge kind of um, asymmetry in talent there, just dis- dis- discrepancy in talent between them and us. Uh, but our coach had coached for them, or their coach many years ago. So um, you know they would play a fair, and they would never try to run up the score, and they would always do the right thing. Um, so we. Uh, you know, they were beating us a few tough, maybe three touchdowns to none. And uh, he has like 21 nothing or so. Um, and uh, we were, we were uh, you know, holding our own uh, pretty well. I mean, for us, honestly, it was a pretty successful game up to that point. It was only, you know, three touchdowns to none. And then uh, our offense just got on a kick. It was my sophomore year. So, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was usually played tight end. But every once in a while, they started putting me back into the backfield. Um, and uh, I remember me and another guy were just kind of running down the field, just Eating yards, you know, five, six yards of carry, five, six yards of carry, and took it all the way down to the four-yard line where it was, uh, you know, we got a little held up. So it was fourth and inches and about the four-yard line. And uh, I remember they called a dive. And I took it, definitely got the first. And as I was going down, realized, oh, my goodness, these are this is the first team that they just threw back in here. And they came and met me. And uh, <laughs> just as I was going down, I felt my spine seemingly shrink an inch or two. <laughs> a little scary for a second, realized, okay, I can still move, was able to slowly somehow get off the field uh, to watch the next play. We fumbled it. They got the ball back, so we didn't even get into the end zone. Oh, damn. But, uh, yeah, that, I wound up missing, you know, I couldn't, I didn't go back. I think I went back in for a play, and, and someone touched me, and I, I, I felt it. So, uh, yeah, that, I think I missed a week. I missed the, the following week, but uh, after that, very fortunate to have never actually uh, suffered any kind of substantial injury from playing sports. In fact, my whole life up until my my injury in Iraq, I mean, I never really had any kind of surgery for sports, athletic, or use injury. That's that's crazy too, because it doesn't like you have you know any background in overcoming those injuries too. So you go from like zero to like a thousand in like a second. So yeah, hey, I'm interested to yeah. hear hear more about that. So mm-hmm. uh, what went into your decision to play at West Point? Or not, so, not yeah, play go, at West Point. Go, I missed, yeah. yeah, go to West Point. Sorry. I did. I mean, I did about playing. But uh, I, I um, yeah, I was looking at, 
when I was uh, in high school, and this is 2001 when I'm like making the real big decisions. I was junior into senior year. So this is before you know 9-11 certainly did not have any indication the world was going to look like it did, um, you know, in the near future. But to be quite honest, again, I went to a school with very high performers. Um, I just uh, wanted to kind of differentiate myself. And at that time, I mean, the, the way to do that, and I you know, kind of felt this higher calling. And I came from a family of, of service, one of the police officers. Uh, no, not a huge military family. I mean, I had an uncle who was, you know, a couple uncles who, you know, went to, you know, drafted, went to Vietnam. And then I had another uncle who went to West Point. Uh, he was a little bit, um, I guess, uh, younger than them. So he, he might have missing Vietnam, but, you know, went to West Point uh, during Vietnam, which was pretty interesting to hear about. And so, yeah, I just wanted to do something, something different. A, it was probably, you know, kind of the, the, the personal and selfish reason. Um, and then B, you know, I had a, a, a relative that went there. My uncle was a great example, Michael Paul Capafari. Uh, and then finally, to be quite honest, uh, you know, it was just my mother, my sister, and I. Uh, this way, you know, my sister kind of had all the money to go to school. It was really just a win-win-win. Right. Um, everybody says, oh, that's so nice. We're so selfless. And I was like, and, you know, obviously it makes me feel good. And that was a reason. But um, it was, you know, just a kind of positive externality of the choice to uh to pursue West Point and, and a career in the military, or, you know, potential career, at least five years in the military, um, you know, that I was making at a pretty, pretty young age. So what do you mean by it was like a selfish, re- like the selfish reasons? Like, what do you mean by that? Oh, I, I guess, I don't know. I just, uh, you know, when I, when I, reasons to go to West Point, again, people see you know, service, this, that, and the other thing. In these were like, I, I gave you a couple of reasons. And of course, too, uh, you know, the power of service and being a part of, of something a lot bigger than yourself. Uh, I, I remember reading, you know, my uncle very strategically gave me books like Once an Eagle and, um, uh, oh my goodness, my, my brain is, um, the, I think the long, I think it's called The Long Gray Line. It's about the class of 66 and Once an Eagle, uh, just these incredible books that either featured West Point or great leaders to kind of, you know, it's almost like propagandizing uh, <laughs> uh, myself. So I guess though, that when I say the selfish thing is, you know, the kind of one reason where I was like, okay, for me, why do I want to do this? Well, I'm surrounded by all these, you know, hard, hard achievers. Um, I just want to do something that kind of separates and differentiates myself from them. Right. Like I'm going to I West know, maybe Point. Yeah. No, I, I yeah. know what you mean. Like it's got a great well, name. Yeah. 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 Well, they, I mean, these kids are all going to Harvard, Yale and Stanford and stuff like that. Yeah. So, uh, so I wanted to, yeah, but nobody else, I was the only one from my, from my class to go to a service academy. Okay. I mean, that's, again, that's why I wanted to just be kind of different in that regard. Cool. So I, I know you said, and I've, I've read that like where you used to practice for football was like in the shadows of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the World Trade Center. So yes, can you like take us through like where you were on 9-11 when you were at West Point and kind of like what was oh, going yeah. through your head? First thing I did morning after breakfast, I had the first hour off. I went to the pharmacy, uh, I got this medication, came back to my room. And then I had to make my bed. You had to break down your bed so they could check it. It was basically a forcing function that required you to make your bed proper once a week. Because we would all just sleep on top of the bed. You know, you'd you'd make the bed once a week, and then you'd sleep on it the rest of the week, either on a sleeping bag or some other blankets or something. This way, you know, in the morning, all you had to do was tighten it up a little bit. Uh, Saves a lot of time. I mean, some (laughs) people love to make their bed every day. You know, God bless them. But uh, so... They make you break it all the way down, then they check to make sure you took your bed apart, and then you have to put it back together, of course, just to kind of force you to spend that time every week to, to make your bed. So I made my bed, and then I kind of was doing the um, this technique during that, especially your freshman year during that morning period, this 
uh, AMI, AM inspection period, you know, you have to have your door wide open. Uh, anyone is allowed into your room, any upperclassman, any time to inspect. Um, but what you can kind of, and you're not allowed to sleep, but what you can kind of do is do the old, like making my bed and then laying on it. And maybe I like drifted off for a minute or two and you'll get yelled at and, um, you know, but it's, it's, it's kind of one of these ways you get around uh, the whole not sleeping during AMI. And I woke up, um, put my head down for a minute or two, and I woke up for someone running down, upper class and running down the hall yelling. I put on the T to the CQ desk, you know, the, the, each company at West Point's dividing these companies of like 130 students each. And each one has a, you know, uh, an individual that kind of just takes calls and they actually get the day off from school and stuff, but they're working all day, taking calls and managing, uh, helping manage the operations of that company for the day. So he's yelling at this guy to put the TV on. I hear the concern, but, you know, I'm a plebe, I'm tired. Um, you know, I'm sick right now. I'm having this issue where I'm bleeding at, you know, out of certain places. Yeah. So I, uh, I, you know, I kind of put my head back down and then, I, yeah, I put my head back down for another five minutes. I don't hear much activity after that. And I get up and I start walking to my uh, first class of the day, which was a physics class and lab. So you'd spend, you know, the first 15 minutes kind of discussing the lab and you go down to the lab. Uh, and actually execute on the lab. And walking over there, I heard someone say about a plane in the Trade Center. And I thought to myself, well, hasn't that happened before? I was thinking about the plane that hit the Empire State Building. You like know, like a small lots. one? Yeah, I, I figured like a Cessna accidentally flew into the Trade Center or something like that. And, you know, obviously, you know, life was lost and uh, things were, you know, that's bad, but it's probably not. And again, I'm from New York City um, and was very, you know, right next to these buildings. And we get in there, and my teacher at the time was an old school, very, it's like Lieutenant Colonel, infantry Lieutenant Colonel. So he was, you know, kind of grew up in like the Vietnam, post-Vietnam times, uh, chemistry teacher. So he's this kind of grizzled old, hard-charging dude. Um, and he's got the TV on, and we were sitting there watching. And you know, I'm watching these, finding out this is a major terrorist attack. And the other plane had just, or both buildings were hit by now. We sat there and watched as the, you know, the first tower went down. Um, and he's, I remember him saying to us, he's like, your all lives have just changed dramatically. Um, that said, we have to lab, we have to execute. So you need to go down to the lab right now. So you have like, we're like a bunch of zombies, especially me. I'm telling somebody, I was like, my high school, look, there's my high school. Like I see the bridge. There's a bridge that goes over West Street. It's this kind of arched bridge that was the way students would get from one side, you know, over this major kind of, street to uh to my high school and there it is and there's a stent trade center going down and not only we have to execute lab but i had to run back to my room to grip my lab goggles uh that was my biggest concern and i think what's really interesting about 9 11 to me at west point west point more than any other school in america uh world you know world therefore probably um was was long-term ultimately or the, the student body at that school was affected more than any other school, you know, I mean, uh, of course, you know, on, on par with the other service academies. Right. And yet that night at West Point, this kind of pervasive nature of, of maintain normalcy, other than a, a slightly increased MP presence around campus, you would have had no idea that the world had changed that day and, and changed very dramatically for every other person that you were walking around seeing that that evening. Uh, I remember there was a, a birthday party, as they were called, and that was when freshmen uh, would kind of have their opportunities to get back at upperclassmen. If it was your birthday as an upperclassman, they can come into your room in the middle of the night and mess with you, uh, dump water on you, things like that. Um, 
And I remember this one first just coming into my room. Uh, I mean, my roommate saying, you're, you're still, you're, you're going to be doing, you better be giving my roommate a birthday party tonight, right? And this was someone nobody liked. Uh, and we said, uh, I, I guess, sir, I guess so. And then I think we did uh, for, for obvious reasons, but. Um, and not really appropriate, yeah, still, I guess, yeah. Yeah, but still, it, it just really points. I think some people did like throw some stuff in his room. I, I again, if this is 20, whatever you're almost 20, long time ago, but I can't remember the details, but um but yeah, it's just that sense of normalcy, you know, it was almost subconsciously we all knew, like, you know, as professionals, as people whose lives are just changing, as people who now are going to have to deal with extreme emotional events and be able to compartmentalize them to accomplish the mission at hand. Um, yeah, I think we all kind of, like I said, subconsciously knew that. And in retrospect, like many years later, I'm just so absolutely impressed that, uh, that you know, collectively as this kind of tribal institution, we were able to, that, that collective subconscious knowledge just seamlessly pass through everybody uh, and even over the next weeks it was it was much more normal than than any other school i heard or saw about that's super interesting because like i'm sure a lot of people would want to be like a fly on the wall at west point like during that time to see like what was going on and you definitely like mm -hmm. painted a pretty cool picture and i would have never thought that you know the trying to keep things normal and it's interesting like you said your teacher was like well your lives all just changed a lot and like it was like it was just you know like he was talking about what he was having for lunch that day, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that, I mean, you, we were sometimes on the other side of years later in our career. And this, this, you know, he knew it. And that's why, I mean, he made, he was almost planting the seed. Like, hey, we just went on convoy and, you know, we just lost the most beloved member of the platoon. We got to go back out there and execute again tomorrow, you know? So it, it is, it is, you know, that kind of, it was a really interesting lesson in, in you know, professional compartmentalization, uh, for lack of yeah. a better term. Um, yeah. So I, I, while we're on the topic, I guess, like, you eventually uh, went to ranger school. Um, so you decided to go into infantry. Mm -hmm. And, like, what kind of led to your decisions to do mm -hmm. that? And, like, where did you end up being deployed to? And you tell us, you know, eventually mm -hmm. get into your injury. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... I, you know, I, I don't want to say peer pressure. Most of my friends uh, were going infantry. Uh, it's funny when I, st I'll never forget my uncle, um, uh, my uncle Paul. So I said the one who went to West Point, uh, West Point started this program where uh, old graduates could march back. The last thing you do in your initial summer basic training is you do like a 15 or 16 mile uh, ruck march from where you trained in the middle of the woods to back to the West Point campus and you're welcome to, to the campus or, you know, accepted into the Corps. Uh, all kinds of ceremonial stuff that I, I can't remember the details off the top of my head, but um, he went on this march, and actually subsequently together we've we've done this march. You know, years later I've marched back. You know, as a, as a grad and alum myself, but uh, yeah, we we were marching back, and he was asking me about uh, my experiences, and um, you know, I said, ah, I, what what I wanted to do. You know, you're going to be infantry after doing this. You know, this brief exposure to it. And I said, ah, I don't know. You know, like this military intelligence stuff seems pretty cool, and you know, where I, I kind of like running around the woods, but, uh, but I don't know. So I, I can't remember specifically what I said. I'll never forget when, you know, all the grads are, you know, they actually say a couple words at some point during the walk. And he called me out. He said, you know, I don't want you to be, and, you know, maybe this isn't the most appropriate thing anymore, but he said, uh, you know, I don't want you to be discouraged like my nephew here, but any, any able-bodied, you know, young man graduating from this place should be going to the infantry um so maybe slightly basically what he's saying yeah basically what he's saying is like you're a pussy if you don't go to infantry 
Uh, yeah, probably, probably a little extreme. Uh, but but yeah, that you know, saying that uh, that the infantry, you know, that 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 particular branch, and all, I mean, uh, uh, honestly, again, all combat arms branches are are phenomenal. Um, and uh, I certainly wasn't the uh, the the you know best infantryman or anything like that. But um, but he said something like that, and I think that kind of little you know that that little challenge right there might have planted some kind of little subconscious seed and uh and then i you know pretty much hung out with a bunch of meatheads at uh at west point all the meatheads kind of went infantry so that's where you know i figured hey i want to go infantry you know again i i i absolutely loved it so glad i made the decision um couldn't uh i mean of course i could i you know uh, could imagine doing a lot of the other jobs but uh for a while i could uh again just really like the uh that kind of being at that kind of point of point of decision making, oftentimes, uh, maybe not actual big decision making, but the decision of whether move right or left, the decision of whether shoot that guy or shoot that guy or not shoot them. Um, it's a, it was a pretty cool, pretty cool place to be. Uh, so yeah, look. Yeah, I think that really like speaks to the culture of toughness. Like I talk about the culture of toughness in sports all the time, but it's obvious that there is like a extreme you know kind of culture of toughness and like this macho kind of mentality at west point i'm sure it's at all the academies and you know in a lot of other places around the world too but it's interesting to see like how the same things that kind of like influence maybe an athlete to play injured or to do this is the same kind of idea that like going into what you know branch of the army you want to go it's a work firm it's peer pressure honestly it's peer pressure (laughs) self-imposed peer pressure often yeah Yeah, it's interesting though. Yeah. Um, but like you said, like you don't regret doing it. So, and you, you know, you couldn't couldn't see yourself doing anything else. Mm-hmm. So it worked mm-hmm. out. Um, so okay, can you take us through like the events that happened on October eighteenth, two thousand and seven, when you uh, had your injury? Yeah. So, um, so again, we were. Uh, I was in a striker unit. Uh, striker is a. Uh, if for for those who aren't familiar, it's it's primarily designed as an armored personnel carrier. They're these uh, large eight wheeled vehicles. If you ever look at any kind of uh, anything from Iraq, you'll see these ca- these these kind of eight wheel vehicles with these cages around them and this gun on this you know what clearly looks like a you know robot weapon system thing or uh, with these cameras and stuff on it. Uh, so that's a, a striker, and a striker is just an amazing, incredible uh, uh, platform. And because of the the versatility and the firepower, frankly. That striker units could bring, uh, you know, we we were a, a very desired asset, and a lot of times striker units, when they got into theater, would just get chopped up and kind of sent out to support other units because of the you know the the fact that we were such a unique asset. So we were bouncing, you know, our, our kind of larger regiment as a whole, and even our battalion was uh, our squadron was for uh, cab unit um, was kind of spread out all over uh, Baghdad. But by the time it was in October. They reconsolidated at least most of my squadron for this big fight in southern Baghdad. And the cool thing about it was uh, this was the last remnants of al-Qaeda in all of Baghdad. So it was an extremely high-profile mission. So I think we were the main effort for all of Iraq for about three weeks, uh, which meant resources. You had almost unlimited resources. Uh, you always had aviation and, and aircraft in the sky. Um, so it was a pretty, pretty amazing, pretty cool fight. Um, and our unit basically started, they cordoned off, rounded the area almost 24-7, started in one side of it, on the easternmost half of the series of neighborhoods, and we're going to push from east to west all the way through. 
So after three weeks of fighting, fighting our way through there, we finally kind of cleared out the last, basically the last remnants of Al-Qaeda. It was a success. And what we were doing on October 18th was going out there and reassessing um, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the most recent area cleared. Because where we, you know, where the unit started, uh, you know, people were actually coming back. You know, the markets were already open and most of the people came back because like, one of these neighborhoods would get taken over. Uh, you know, 90, any, any able, any person that was able to leave left. So like 90% of the population was gone. The 10% that stuck there are usually like women and children have nowhere else to go. So they kind of bunker down. But by the time... Once Al-Qaeda, yeah. once Al-Qaeda took over, you exactly. say? Exactly. Yeah, they come in. So people okay. leave. And actually, the biggest threat we had were, were um, uh, at the time, were houses that were ready to explode. Because uh, they would essentially, first of all, they took houses, uh, abandoned houses, and turned them into homemade explosive factories where they would just dump all the chemicals on like the concrete floor and mix it up, <clears throat> excuse me, and then scrape it up. And, you know, a lot of times that's how they made HME. And they would usually sit there and also booby trap the house on top of it. So we lost some folks in, in houses that blew up. But, you know, as time went along, we got better at identifying and mitigating these risks. Um, but it's interesting, again, the, the, you know, where we started three weeks earlier, that place was back to normal. Um, where we kind of were on October 18th, you know, we were meeting people trickling back in. Um, so we're doing that. Then we had to jump out, uh, leave the area for a little bit out of sector, um, drive to a nearby base that we had staged out of. Again, it's a drive we went many, many times. Uneventful drive out to the base. We're there for about two hours doing a refit. And then we're driving back into the, uh, into these mahalas, into this, this area when, um, and I was actually standing out, you know, it has these hatches that you can stand out and uh, essentially stand at the hatch and you're, you're looking out. So, you're, you know, you're a little bit uncovered. Yeah, uncovered. Well, you have uh, actually, you're generally not uncovered, maybe a little bit. You, you want to have, we have, we call it a Pope glass. So instead of being inside the vehicle, everybody's kind of sitting inside the vehicle. You have people on the outside, you know, air guards and the squad leader and then the you know, leader of the vehicle. And then, the, you know, the person who, the vehicle commander who actually... Uh, has a lot of responsibility, but one is firing that, uh, you know, that kind of the main weapon that we have on top, whether it's a 50 cal or a Mark 19, uh, oftentimes through the remote weapon system, which I was talking about earlier, that kind of camera, automatic, crazy auto turret looking thing on top. Um, Sounds crazy. Yeah. So we're, so we're driving along and um, I remember I'm looking north uh, out at, uh, at the road. It's dark out. I have my nods on, uh, really quiet, uneventful. And while all of, pretty much all of Southern Baghdad was uh, Sunni, which is, you know, the Al-Qaeda, the bad guys affiliated with the Sunnis, there was one tiny, this one little area, this sliver of, of basically housing projects uh, called the Saha Apartments that were Shia. So again, Shias in Iraq were the kind of uh, oppressed uh, majority of the country. Uh, so a lot of times, you know, uh, Sadr City was just a giant housing project, basically. And... Uh, and the Saha apartments were. In fact, before we got there, they used to lob mortars back and forth between, um, you know, the Al-Qaeda guys and the, and the Jaysh al-Mahdi, who were the Shia bad guys. So we're driving from the Saha apartments. All of a sudden, you know, there's an explosion. And it, A, it's small. So a lot of the, most of the explosions we deal with Al-Qaeda are just massive amounts of HME, huge concussive blasts. You get knocked down in the hatch. You know, your, head get, your bell gets rung. Uh, but, you know, physically, usually you're fine, especially in these strikers, which were, I mean, unbelievably, unbelievably uh, survivable. I mean, I saw these strikers taking huge blasts and actually being able to recover back to base. And everybody inside is fine, even though their heads, I mean, long term, who knows what. But um, 
but it's a small explosion. The weird thing was we, we wore these, um, these headsets that were connected to the radio. So you'd plug into the radio, and then when you got out, you'd plug it into your personal radio, and they were those noise-canceling um, headsets. These were, yeah, Bose. Bose and Peltors, and there's another Sorens, I think, make them. And they're pretty cool in that, A, they're ear protection, so they any huge sounds, huge sharp sounds, they mitigate. Um, they actually enhance lower, like, voice-type conversations, so lower frequency or, you know, there's a filter system in there that enhances those things and also connects to your radio. Ah, so, you know, great things. You never have to take them off. And um, it sounded like someone yelled the word boom, like the actual word boom into my ears really loud. Uh, so that was the first weird thing, especially afterwards, you know, the radio, it turns out the radio was, was destroyed. So again, this was the first indication that body chemicals went, got really weird, you know, with this massive okay. trauma. So it sounds like someone yells the word boom. Um, and uh, I suddenly noticed that all my weight is on my elbows, uh, and, and, and it's holding me up in the hatch, that, and like I'm kind of wedged in there with my body armor and my, um, and the, you know, all my gear that's on my body armor. And at the time, I mean, I was in the best shape. I was, I was massive. I was 230. Uh, I used to run uh, at the, we were, we were based at a biop. I used to run the road there. I was probably, I mean, you know, we measure our, our running time by like two mile time. And I was, I was 230 pounds running sub 12 minute, two miles. Um, wow. All I did was, you know, we do patrol and eat and work out and and sleep. You know, it was a very kind of uh, structured lifestyle, and you know, no drinking, and you burned off everything you ate, and we took all kinds of crazy supplements. There's nothing else to spend your money on. So, uh, I mean, I credit that for. I mean, I, that absolutely kept me alive um, because I got hit, stuck in the hatch, and I, as soon as I realized I'm I'm only in the hatch because of my elbows and my my mass kind of holding me wedged in there. I suddenly realized I can't feel my entire lower body. Uh, obviously, a little disconcerting. And this all happens pretty quick. So I can't feel my lower body. I just look down. I see through the hatch. You know, I can see through it. I see my right leg. And as soon as I look at it, I feel it's fine. I'm able to plant it back onto the, uh, onto the bench that I was standing on. And I look over at the other leg. And um, I'll tell you, our uniforms, our ACUs, were, were really good, almost too good sometimes at hiding the severity of an injury. Um, because, you know, you get a blast wound or a bullet wound and you wouldn't, they wouldn't really tear up the uniform, but you would start pulling with blood. So you get just dark spotches. Bottom line, it was usually hard to tell, like I said, how severe an injury was. So while I looked down, I saw right. my, my uniform shredded. I saw my tibia look like someone snapped like a tree branch, just splintered at the end, sticking out of my leg. Um, I looked down, I saw my patella, you know, as I started kind of moving around, like sliding a little bit up and down and you know, through this giant hole in my knee. And, uh, I realized, all right, this is, uh, this is probably not, <laughs> this is this, not this good. Is, yeah. Just like your life has just changed. Uh, it was one of the, another one of those moments. Um, and I actually, uh, shock, whatever, who knows, just, I passed out. Um, and I was out for, uh, it turned out in reality, only 15 or 20 seconds. What was happening in the, in, in the real world was, uh, the driver who was the only one wasn't hit guns it down the road. And uh, it just guns it, makes sure we're not in any kind of like complex ambush. Uh, and we get about 400 right. meters down the road, and it turns out the fuel, the fuel lines had gotten cut. So then the striker dies there. Uh, in, oh, shit. Yeah, inside, which, is, which you know, is, is a little disconcerting, but, you know, at least we're out of where we got attacked. Um, and we're closer to where the rest of our forces were. What, what I was going through was, I, it, I can't remember the exact details, but I went to my happy place. 
I, um, I, you know, I, I think it was like a Corona commercial where I was on the beach, you know, I had a beer. All I remember, it was so warm and comfortable and I was just so happy and chill. And, uh, I remember saying, oh my God, that was a horrible dream I just had, you know, thinking about getting blown up in Iraq. And um, I'm sitting there, and again, I can't remember exactly what the, the details were, but all of a sudden, everything just started shaking, and then boom, there I was, like, in this this hellacious, smoky, green mess well, with blood, like, a, in a lake of blood, and, and the guy, um, that was named Sergeant Darren Smith, I mean, he was he, he was on the opposite side of me, standing the other way, and he had this, he eventually would have the same injuries to, to his leg on his right, well, similar injuries on his right leg to that on my left, but he's screaming bloody murder, so I'm feeling horrible. At the time, you know, I'm trying to get an assessment of the situation, because, like, well, I'm, you know, I'm the leaders here, like, that was, which was a good thing, like, I, I have to, it was a distraction, like, okay, where is, you know, where's the company commander, where is, the, you know, the other platoon leader, stuff like that, um, what's the situation, so, it was kind of like that that luxury of being able to take your mind off yourself for a little bit, which I think that combined with just the sheer amount of nerve damage and damage I had to my body, uh, I was very fortunate. I didn't feel, I wasn't in any pain. I felt very uncomfortable. It felt like my left leg, like I had been sitting on an airplane with a really small seat, just my left leg for the past 24 hours. So I call it severe discomfort, but it wasn't pain, uh, fortunately. But unfortunately, Darren Smith, he's, he's in a lot of pain. So we're able to, the ramp in the vehicle broke. So we had to kind of drop out um, of this vehicle. I don't remember saying this, but apparently I, I said to him, hey, uh, let's, uh, let's get up and try to like, hop over there. <laughs> and apparently we both did try to get up and like, immediately collapse. My, my pelvis was broken. All my internal organs, it turns out, were, were peppered or chopped up by shrapnel, or uh, most of them. Uh, um, I can get into the specifics in a little bit. So we get dragged over the side. By that time, again, because we had such a presence out in this area, uh, you know, the, the company commander shows up. Every, I mean, very quickly, the situation's under control as a defensive perimeter. And now we're just getting folks ready to get to the hospital. Um, we did lose one soldier. Uh, Wayne Geiger is actually I'm in California. He's from Lone Pine, California. Again, just, uh, you know, um, Freak. I mean, everybody got peppered in the vehicle with shrapnel, and he just unfortunately, you know, got hit in the wrong place. And um, uh, you know, so that's that's tough. And that's when I was talking about the guy who's like a real, you know, heart and soul of uh, one one of the so you know, sp spiritual, uh, funny folks. You know, like one of the 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 people in a platoon that you really look towards when uh, when things get dark. Keeps it yeah, lighthearted. Keeps it lighthearted. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, we're on the side of the road, and um. You know, we're just getting ready to uh, get evac'd. I remember, okay, uh, you know, my role, you know, to try to, now my role is to just stay here, be a good patient, but let me, I actually tried, I started trying to make jokes. Um, I made some joke about Rippets, which is this, like, cheap energy drink that we uh, we lived off out there that we kind of got for free. It was like a, kind of like a lower end Red Bull. Um, I don't want to say lower end. I don't want to knock the Rippets people if they're listening, but uh, it's a great drink. We used to drink. Uh, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what, they made enough money off uh, the contract with the U.S. government. I don't care. They probably don't care what I say, but uh, uh, but yeah, they were, uh, I, we used to joke about how they're going to win the war, you know, this little energy drink, and um, which, you know, if you weren't in Iraq, you probably wouldn't be drinking, but uh, uh, but yeah, I made a joke about that. The Rippets people then visited me in the hospital like months later. It was kind of funny.
But um, funny. but yeah, we got me into the you know got me into the striker, got me to the hospital. The hospital is unbelievable. I mean, he's if it, it, it in two thousand eight or two thousand seven, and probably two thousand eight, and, and even years later, probably the best place in the entire world to have a severely traumatic injury was Baghdad, Iraq. You had the highest rate of survival. In fact, the way I kept myself alive too was I said, all right, if I'm alive. When I get to the hospital, I'm going to live because everybody who was alive when they got to the hospital had survived, including like one or two guys. I think had technically their hearts had stopped. They were able to bring them back. So I'm alive to get to the hospital. Wow. I live. If I am a conscious, I'm alive. So I was actually conscious right up until surgery, you know, was able to maintain consciousness and uh, you know, needed a couple of transfusions to, to maintain it. But uh, yeah, so that was my motivator. And, and actually, I, I, tell, I tell this, uh, I was telling someone just yesterday. The real, the true motivation behind needing to stay alive was, or what, what kept me staying awake was if I die, so just a little background. So my mother, um, again, brother, one, one of my, this one of the uncles that went to Vietnam, he went out to Vietnam uh, when she was very young, you know, her, her home life. I mean, it was not a, the most function, you know, somewhat dysfunctional family. So, uh, you know, it was very traumatic when he went and uh, he got hurt over there, not severely, but, you know, he came back and he was definitely changed. And. That and a lot of other factors led my mother to being very, very anti-war. So it was already tough. She had a son over there. But um, I knew that if I got killed, she would not. Um, you guess anyone, they would say, yes, this is her. She would have tried to kill, assassinate George Bush. Um, and she would have failed. It would closer, but she would have failed. And she would have gotten herself killed in the process. And then my poor sister was all, would be all alone. So this is literally going through my head. Uh, you know, I don't want my poor sister to be alone, so I'm going to have to stay alive here. Um, and that uh, I got to the hospital and uh, actually was able to, I didn't get, I called her, I was able to leave a message. Um, but was able to, you know, they actually, I was surprised. They let me use a satellite phone, um, even though we had lost somebody. So technically we're supposed to be on blackout. Um, but I just let them know, like, hey, I'm going into surgery. It's pretty severe. They might be able to save the leg. They think I should survive. Uh, but that's also about the time that I found out I had, a giant piece of shrapnel that entered me right below my left butt cheek and was now, you know, a couple of millimeters below the surface of the skin next to my belly button, which means, uh, yeah, yeah. So I had my injuries just to go over my injuries. Um, I had an open commutated so that, that tree branch snap fracture in my tibia. I had just mass amounts of, you know, open wounds and somehow, even though a bunch of shrapnel passed through my knee, there was no major structural damage. I mean, I'm probably gonna have to get it replaced and, like arthritis and stuff in, in, you know, 20 years or so. But amazingly, if you look at my knee and you see just massive swaths of flesh that should be there gone, um, it still works just fine. Uh, well, not fine, but it works. But then the other issue was I had a bunch of shrapnel that kind of hit me on an upward angle in my backside. And that uh, that's what kind of caused some injuries to my abdominals to organs. So I had a, uh, my my large bowel was, was, was hit pretty bad so i actually had a colostomy for eight months um that was due to that probably due to that big large piece of shrapnel i, I mean obviously i can only imagine how much small bowel i wound up losing because of uh you know because of damage my stomach was nicked so i had a perforated stomach um which i i couldn't eat for a week after that and then g tube sucking everything out um fortunately i was so big the first week it was fine but then after that i mean i had a lot of issues at walter reed um for a whole bunch of reasons, but one was because of GI issues. Um, 
black. Right. And, and you already had, and you already had yeah, GI, already issues, had GI right? issues that I that I managed. So I managed to keep it under control in West Point. Um, and even in, and actually, the the time I was so really good about taking my medicine was Iraq because I didn't want that causing any kind of uh, you know degradation in performance. But um, yeah, I started had GI yeah. issues, bladder, small bowel, liver got nicked. Uh, my gallbladder a couple of years after that just filled up with stones and died. So. Uh, and I had to get it removed, so who knows if that was a secondary effect. But uh, most of those injuries, again, eight months later, I had to cost me reverse, which is really the only one I cared about. Um, I, had a, I had my leg after that for three years, um, believe it or not. Um, and that kind of goes into the, the cannabis stuff. Um, uh, you had my leg for three years, and, and uh, I don't know if you want to specifically ask. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, so like, why did, I guess they obviously wanted to like keep your leg for... I guess because they thought it would be better than amputating, or like I guess what went into that decision. So again, at the time, the 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 majority of you know the, the tibia was fixable. Okay, yes, I lost a lot of tissue in my calf and a lot of tissue in my leg, uh, but it it was still a viable limb except for this issue, this nerve issue. My perineal nerve uh, was destroyed. The problem with nerve damage is you have to give it a lot of time you know, to find out exactly the full extent of the damage, like how much of it's going to regenerate. Um, so you can't just, based off of even a month or two of, of healing, uh, know the full extent, you know, long-term, because they, the, the nerve regrowth is so, so slow, you know, what actual functionality you're going to get back at the end of X amount of months. So typically they right. want to wait, I mean, if, if, if they can, if it's nerve-related, about 18 months. Um, so during this process, again, I had these crazy, all kinds of fixators, you know, external fixators on my leg. Uh, there's these, they look um, like medieval torture devices with these rings and these pins that literally go through your skin into the bone. I mean, you can see these pins going through someone's skin. Um, and ironically, uh, the, the, it's only been recently that computing and modeling technology has actually allowed for these things to be used. Um, anyone who's really interested in kind of cutting edge, with, so we don't go off on another tangent here. Uh, look up a Taylor spatial frame external fixator, um, and it's kind of miraculous the, what what you could do with these really archaic looking devices. But yeah, three. Yeah, I'll, I'll link I'll link that up in the show notes, and I'll put a picture of the striker vehicle in there cool, too. Cool, awesome, awesome. That's yeah, super helpful. Um, yeah, so three years, you know, while this and while we're checking on this nerve, uh, everybody's super bullish on you know saving the leg. Um, so of course, you know, I am too. But the the problem is during this time is. You know, because of this, this recovery and the fact that, you know, I, w I was closer to home, um, which was huge. And my mother was up every weekend. I, I wound up going back to West Point, close to my home in New York City, to recover. Um, you know, I had a relationship there with, with, with teachers. So it seemed like I had a peer group there. But in reality, I, you know, I really didn't. And I think that's, that would, you know, that was a struggle that I had. Um, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do substantial physical stuff. That was a struggle I had. Uh, I, and you, and you said you went from being like, you know, top shape, you know, while you were in Iraq to exactly now you're saying you're, you're limited in your physical capability. Yeah. I would spend, I mean, 15, actually 15, you know, I'd spend like 20 hours a day on this recliner in front of a TV, you know, between sleeping at night and then just laying there during the day. And the, the thing is when you, you're not interacting with other folks, um, you're you're physically in a lot of pain. I mean, I was in a lot of pain. Uh, you have these opiates. Uh, you you just it's. I wouldn't even, you know. I, I never say, and I think I have like an addictive personality in some ways, and maybe genetically and stuff. But 
Um, you know, I don't know if I was addicted to, to the medicine or if it was, you know, I was dependent or if I was just using it to treat other conditions that really was, you know, a lot of depression related. And, and the fact that, you know, I was lonely as by myself. Um, and, and even so that was the initial period. And even as I started healing and getting out there and meeting folks and, you know, especially at that time, uh, you know, Wounded Warrior Project has, you know, it has its criticisms and can and, and rightfully so. But I'll tell you what, at that certainly at that time in the late, you know, in their early days or middle days of the, the war, especially in Iraq, I mean, they were doing a lot of great things. Um, so they did a lot of great things and really helped me out. I'm grateful to those folks for that. But at the same time, you know, then I started getting the cycle of, okay, now we're going to start doing these surgeries because I had to wait for the initial eight months. They did the reverse colostomy. They took the cage off the leg. Now I could start really seeing, you know, what, what long-term, you know, viably, what, what how I'm going to heal. And the problem was that it, it wasn't going well. So it, it wound up turning into the cycle where about every three months I'd have another surgery. Um, and I had a guy named John Kennedy, actually. I think anyone named in Ireland, last name Kennedy, first son was in between like 1960 and 70. First son was named John, second son was named Bobby. So I had a Dr. John Kennedy, Irish guy, uh, phenomenal, did uh, for hospital special surgery, one of the best, again, one of the best surgeons at the best hospital, one of the best hospitals in the world. And he was doing some uh, really exotic things to save uh, and saved a few soldiers' uh, legs. Uh, unfortunately, with mine, there was nothing super sexy or exotic he could do. So, uh, you know, did his best and kept having these surgeries. And again, at the end of the day, the nerve never regenerated, which was really the, the, the big thing, I think, that drove a lot of the issues. Okay. Uh, and finally, after a couple of years, I made the decision to amputate. I went down to Fort Sam Houston. At first, they didn't want to amputate either, uh, which was a little disappointing. They wanted me to try uh, the specialty orthotic brace. Um, a lot of people, if there's any other wounded warriors listening, that, that especially that pass through the CFI, uh, they know that um, at first I was really reluctant, but I'm actually grateful that they almost forced me to do this, even though I think it was for like, because they had this research money and that's kind of, it was more research money driven why they made me not get the amputation. Maybe not completely. Oh, they're trying to like test things out. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it was probably like somewhat altruistic, but it was also probably driven by that. Uh, but Johnny Owens, physical therapist, and Ryan Blanc, prosthetist, uh, together, um, again, helped produce this device in a ther physical therapy regime. And I didn't think I was going to be off painkillers. I was on math. Yeah, I'm actually uh, interviewing Johnny Owens in the couple oh, weeks. Oh, Johnny the is the best. Yeah. Tell him I say what's up. I'm going to have to reach out to him. I mean, he is the guy who wrote Limb Stylage Physical Therapy. He, I mean, we were doing, uh, you know, pro-level um, uh, pro rehab, uh, this incredible comprehensive three hours of physical therapy with Johnny Owens a day, Limb Stylage Physical Therapy. Um, and I'll tell you what, I went from being in a lot of pain and barely able to walk uh, and because I was able to run, because I was able to start working out, doing squatting even on this leg, uh, being able to really pound that nerve that what essentially what happened was that nerve that got destroyed just started balling up and just started feeling pain. The more painkillers you gave it, you know, you had this double effect where your brain, not only are you in pain, so you want it, but then you can be out of pain and feel really good doing it. So it's like a double whammy. Your body just craves it, and your body will actually turn the pain up. You know, at first it'll turn up the the urge to want to like you know get this pleasure from taking the medicine, and when that stops working, then it just starts turning the pain way up, and it's like now nah, you can't ignore me. Like you can you can be tough and 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 you know and put off this desire, this addictive or dependent desire to take this or take more than you need. Um, 
I'm going to just turn this pain way up on you. So now by actually able to stimulate this nerve and really pound on it, I was shocked that not only was I off painkillers before my amputation, um, I mean, I was already through, I had a very brief withdrawal period. Uh, it was it was pretty benign compared to how bad it could have been. And again, these are all attributed to the, the comprehensive, multidisciplinary, holistic program that the CFI had um, uh, with, with getting, you know, both managing pain and managing injuries and and the, the care model they had, uh, which has led to incredible success. So yeah, so I, I did that, wound up uh, still getting the amputation because at the end of the day, functionality, uh, in fact, as I, because of nerve damage, some muscles worked, some didn't, I had an, I already had an imbalance of forces that was starting to warp my leg. And frankly, as I got stronger um, and more athletic and able to run and, and off the painkillers, that imbalance got worse because those muscles were getting built up. The ones that worked were getting built up. So, right. you know, honestly, had the amputation. Everybody asked me, it was a hard decision? Not at all. The night before, I remember having, we had, my mother came down, we had a nice meal. And uh, I, I remember saying, I, what, should I feel anything? Should I feel weird? And no, I was just really, it wasn't even I was excited. I was just looking forward to maybe some normalcy, to maybe actually being able to, you know, take a little bit more control over my life. Because I saw, you know, I knew with the amputation what I was getting rid of, uh, both on the bad side and, of course, what I was getting rid of on the positive side. But when you just see folks, you know, with prosthetics running circles around you and thriving, um, yeah, there was no decision. It was easy. Uh, and frankly, because I was in such great shape because of that brace, because of Johnny Owens and, uh, and Ryan Blanc and the rest of the staff of the CFI, I... I um, I mean, I, I was at, I, I, they never even put a PCA in, you know, so I never even needed uh, IV painkillers. Um, took a couple of pills here and there as quickly as I could, shifted off them completely. Uh, and I was in, I had a surgery on Friday. And I, I, I could have been out of the hospital on Sunday if they let me. But I was on the hospital, out of the hospital Monday doing physical therapy, um, you know, amputation of my leg. Uh, and that, again, as I largely attribute to, to all the work uh, beforehand that didn't work in salvaging my leg but uh, certainly worked in making me uh, the best possible, you know, as fit as possible uh, going forward. Really cool. Yeah. yeah we're, I'm, I'm interviewing him about his like blood flow restriction technology and like how he does that in rehab. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know he, uh, he's, he's moved he, on to that and I, I gotta, I do gotta reach out to him. I, I should, Oh man, I would love to, to I, I, every once in a while I need physical therapy and uh, only I could figure out a way to only have the money to just fly out to Johnny like once or twice a week. I'd, That'd be, yeah, he's your guy. My guy. So you said that you got off of painkillers pretty quick mm -hmm. after you had your leg amputated, but was that because you you started using cannabis, or like when did cannabis kind of come into mm -hmm. the the picture? So you know, it's interesting. I always have to clear clear folks. People think I used it directly as a substitute to get off the painkillers. And again, I was still in the military this whole time. I wasn't going to roll the dice or play the game. Um, so yeah, I didn't have access to cannabis. I didn't try. I didn't know what it could do for me or what it could. Now, I, I just consider myself again, pretty fortunate. And then I had, you know, I still had the support systems and, and, you know, certain drive motivation, the opportunity to go to the center for the intrepid and, uh, to be able to do all these things that were able to get me off, you know, off, off the opiates, uh, at that time. And again, I think from a mental health perspective too, um, you know, the issues that, you know, I, I kind of have now, which, which I use cannabis for, I actually think they were um, a, a product, they were a product of, of all those three years on opiates and everything. But it really took uh, 
I think some, some more life to kind of, and some more situations and, and novel situations to me, like going to grad school and, and having some, and frankly, some cognitive issues uh, that kind of really brought out some of, some of the issues which I use cannabis for now. But again, at the time, I, you know, I, I did really well. And I didn't, I didn't try cannabis actually until, you know, and it was frankly for funsy, you know, recreationally, um, you know, in grad school and, and tried it a couple of times um, and realized never even for anything related to, uh, you know, physically um, or mentally, even though certainly, it, you know, it, it, I did notice its, its effects on my mood and, and stabilizing my mood in some ways. Um, but again, it was whatever I, you know, I think it was whatever people had. So I didn't know anything about strains or, or you know, how you can really address specific issues with specific genetics or specific ways of intaking it. You know, I didn't know any of that stuff. So I didn't really know its full power. Uh, fast forward, though, to, to 2014, uh, you know, I moved out to California, uh, graduated from, from grad school in Boston. I was there for three years. Um, and actually, I, I, I did. You went to Harvard. I, so, I, I, so here, yeah, I did go to Harvard. And I, and I tell people, I mean, that's, um, it's been a double-edged sword for me because I, um, um, you know, I, I think I, I, I wish I had noticed some of my cognitive issues and maybe figured out programs to address them. A lot of memory things, just a little bit. Uh, it takes me a little bit longer to kind of in a few, maybe more repetitions to really, to really lock things down and to really understand things. And again, I don't know if this is from the blast, if this is from the opiate use or what. Um, but it, I, I struggle and I, and I actually have, you know, struggled with a lot of self-esteem things there because to be quite honest, uh, Kevin, I mean, I could, I mean, the one thing, you know, like physically I was pretty good. You know, I was okay at West Point, uh, militarily I started off good and then I kind of stopped caring. So whatever, um, you know, and I had a fine career <laughs> and all that stuff. But, um, I mean, academically, I mean, I was a stud at West Point, uh, you know, academics came easy and that's where I kind of dedicate a lot of my efforts because A, it's what I enjoy most and B, I thought, you know, like long, you know, um, just learning how to learn is, is going to be probably the most important thing, not just for a military career, but for, for life. Um, so, you know, I, the degradation performance I had, I, you know, I think that actually caused a lot more of my issues and it brought out these things from those three years, ironically, my, my military service, you know, no, no issues from that. Even the, mo even this traumatic event, even other things, trauma, you know, experience and saw doesn't doesn't really have an effect. I think it's more, you know, the, the, um, not the, not the incident itself, but the after effects of how it's changed me that I've had, you know, I've, I've struggled to deal with. And I mean, I think a lot of it goes back to, uh, you know, I recently read Sebastian Younger's tribe and, um, you know, how, you know, coming back, I mean, for all veterans, it's kind of tough. Oh, thank you for your service thing. But as a wounded veteran, I mean, you know, you're almost treated like, a, a baby at times. Oh, you know, I'm so, so proud of you. You're so good. You know, we're going to take care of you, this, that, and the other thing. You inspire me. Thank you for your service. And, you know, it's it, the, the meaning as well, but because our society is just so far from a society where like the, the, you know, public service and, you know, defense of, of one's country is integrated into everyday life that it, it kind of does fall flat and it, it, it's well-intentioned, but it, I don't think it's very productive. Um, so, you know, a lot of that, you know, having experienced that, I think leads a lot of our veterans to being, you know, all of a sudden when, when they're there alone and the, again, you, it, it's, 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 a really weird thing where you, you want to say, well, this is a guy who, you know, was a leader and was successful in all these things in life. And now they're, uh, you know, now they're struggling to like, 
kind of manage their own, you know, their, their individual, their own personal life, uh, manage their finances, manage whatever. And it's because even the, 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 you know, the greatest champions of the military out there, after years of opiates and after years of being babied in this society, that's very just, again, it's such a, so divide, so far from what we experience. Um, you know, it, it's hard. You, you revert a little bit, I think, in, in some weird way. So again, I come out to, I came out to California and, and again, I would, I would occasionally struggle with these things and, and, um, and just issues with, with, uh, comparing myself to who I was in the past, which again is, is something that, you know, you is probably better off for like talking through that with a therapist to help and, and you can go, go that route. Right. But, um, you know, sometimes you need a little bit more and I, and I discovered, uh, you know, I finally said, Hey, let me go get my medical card and see what this cannabis thing is all about. And I try recreationally. Let's see. Uh, and you know, I, I started seeing all these, these health benefits and cures cancer and anti-diabetic and thought it was all a bunch of stoner, you know, bullshit, frankly. Um, but yeah, I got, I got some, had some cannabis and, you know, had some and realized, wow, this is really good. And the one, you know, the physical issues I do have, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but, um, I was probably going through a bottle, like a 180 count bottle of, of Advil. I don't know, like every two months, maybe. I mean, I, was, I got taken Advil almost every day. Um, That's substantial. Without even re- I mean, without even realizing it, you know, it's just, it's almost like you're just, oh, I'm, I'm a little tight in my knee, take some Advil, go by my day, oh, I get this headache for, I don't know why, a little bit of Advil. Um, so I started realizing that, you know, I haven't taken like, I don't know, a half a dozen Advil in the past 18 months or so. Um, so it was, you know, I was addressing inflammation in my body. And, uh, the other thing is restless leg for, uh, you know, I will wake up sometimes and just have a lot of difficulty falling back asleep. I'll fall asleep fine. And like, it's my body just can't stop shaking. So, um, so yeah, this is perfect for that. So I noticed from a physical standpoint, uh, for me personally, what's restless leg, restless leg, it's, um, and I think it's actually related to like dopamine issues in the brain, which probably has something to do with all those, you know, years of, and actually my, my, all my withdrawals, the only issue I had was restless leg, um, where it's, I think it's just your body, you can't like, start shaking. I don't know. Like you can't, you have this compulsive desire to almost like an itch, but to like move and usually affects your legs. Um, Again, oh, okay. probably something for folks to look up. It, it's a thing I think a lot of people experience at night. But yeah, so I had, so that, those are my physical issues. And I realized, you know, that my mood and my, uh, you know, which usually related to, you know, how I felt viewing myself because of this kind of degradation and performance. And, and again, the, the, I know actually this past week, uh, you know, I was talking about how busy of a, of a week I had. Well, on top of that, I couldn't wear my legs the past week. Because even now, you know, like years later, I get a small wound on my leg. Like I got now, I had a scar on my leg that somehow, you know, sometimes it's overuse um, and sometimes it's just spontaneous, but just got some kind of infection and started opening up. So I had to take my leg off for a week. Uh, so those things are, are at a challenge, um, not substantially. So in order to kind of help improve mood and, and, and motivation, things like that, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I started using cannabis and then started learning more about it. More important than me, though, is, is, you know, other veterans I see out there. I see veterans, you know, in states that have access, like California, Washington, Oregon, and who start using cannabis and who learn about it and who, you know, are working with other vets who can share their experiences. Um, uh, you know, these folks are, are actually able to get off the opiates because that's the problem. I mean, the, the other individuals hurt with, I mean, I know 
you know, opiates were, were on opiates for a very, very long time. There's still other folks that I went through recovery with 10 years after the fact that have to take opiates every day. And I know folks that have died either directly from their opiates or, you know, I guarantee you that was a, you know, part of the, you know, underlying cause of why they killed themselves or, you know, why they died from some other kind of uh, medical overdose. So it was really more for them that I started to, to explore uh, and, and start to advocate for this because I knew I was someone that as a West Point graduate, uh, as a, with, you know, pretty, pretty robust science degree, as a, a Harvard, you know, business and, and public policy graduate, uh, that, that, you know, when I, when the stoner kind of folk, you know, quote unquote, traditional stoner, even like a lot of veterans that are, um, you know, a lot of veterans out there that are a little bit, uh, uh, I guess more raw in a sense, you know, um, uh, Come out again, you know, for cannabis, uh, you know, people listen, but not as much sometimes um, as if I were to get up there and, and, and talk about it. So that's yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So I, I, I decided I, I worked at a tech company, a hardware tech company for a year. Then I worked in healthcare for a year. Um, and then as I started uh, getting more and more um, just just through living out here and meeting random folks, uh, understanding and finding out there is this kind of robust cannabis industry um uh, going on that i decided on a whim to take a four-day uh, course at this place oaksterdam university which sounds kind of kitschy it's like oaks oakland plus amsterdam but it's actually one of the most right. important um institutions i think in in cannabis because it educates lawmakers uh, entrepreneurs law enforcement grandmas that want to learn about this everybody uh you know it's, it, it it has education uh, really good education for. And that's why I learned that, um, you know, these health benefits people talk about, these general health benefits having nothing to do with getting you high. Again, there's CBD, cannabidiol. Uh, that's something everybody in the next few years is going to be hearing about. And I guarantee you tens of millions of Americans are going to be taking a supplement with CBD in it in the next 10 years uh, for general health purposes. Uh, as I start, and the cancer thing, like it actually has been shown in vivo, in vitro, animal models, you know, to, uh, you know, kill certain types of cancer. They know the mechanism of action. And then on top of that, because of this diabetes control, uh, which is also proven, your body is able to better utilize insulin and blood sugar and slowly digest slower, sugar slower. You know, that not only helps general health and, and um, you know, anti, as an anti-diabetic, but then also doubles back to the cancer thing and that it's um, making it harder for cancers to get one of their main food sources, which is insulin. Uh, right. So again, as I, yeah. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying, like, it's super interesting, this whole marijuana thing, because, I know, like, I was kind of someone who was influenced by the stigma associated to it for pretty much my whole mm -hmm. life, like, ever since the D.A.R.E. program, I talk about this yep. uh, in my interview with Evan, and it's just super interesting to see all these, like, great benefits um, that has such a bad reputation. Yeah, you know? I remember, so going back to football, actually, high school football, uh, again, I went to what, what you know, what, what's considered a very liberal school. And um, I, I, uh, I'm actually people are surprised to find I'm, I'm fairly liberal and progressive now. You know, years later, um, but at the time, I think in high school, I rebelled against uh, against my you know liberal high school. Instead of rebelling against you know parents, although my mother's you know pretty liberal too, um, maybe I was kind of rebelling against her a little bit. But um, but yeah, I, I got in this huge, huge again. Tried it a couple times in high school. Um, First couple of times didn't do anything. The next couple of times were, I mean, absolutely, absolutely horrible. And I, I mean, I, I barely had, I mean, I like 
one puff and I was in, in anxiety hell, you know, for the next eight hours. So, you know, there was a personal reason I demonized it, but then I was on this very conservative kick. And I remember um, our football team a lot would go out drinking, like, you know, after games or, you know, some weekends we didn't have games. And I made a big deal that, you know, I was captain. I was like, yeah, drinking's okay, but <laughs> drinking's okay, but God, you smoke weed. You know, I'm going to kick the shit out of you personally. I don't want you doing that pussy shit. Excuse me on my language. I, I heard you say pussy before, so I'm going to throw it out there. But uh, um, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I was really, really against it and um, uh, for, for kind of uh, all the wrong reasons and for all the wrong reasons that uh, people are kind of still against it and saw it as something soft and, and, and weak. And, um, and and frankly, I because I had such an you know because of my experience with it, I assumed it was that powerful and that negative for everybody. Um, meanwhile, you know, we'd go out drinking, and and sometimes you go. I remember once we we just went out, and we we got a little drunk before a game, and it wound up costing us the game the next day. And and what? Yeah. So I don't know. It's just I don't want to get into that. It's a bad bad memory, bad leadership uh, <laughs> thing. But anyway, um, you've since improved. I've since improved. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right. So I, I could tell that, like, like you said, I was interested because it seemed like immediately after your injury, it wasn't necessarily like the hard part for you. Mm -hmm. It seemed like that transition to civilian life yes. was really where your, your struggle lied. So what is it, since you've kind of come out on the other end here, what's your advice to both veterans and athletes who are transitioning to a life either after sports or after their military careers? Yeah. And this goes back again. This is, I mean, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, so I'm still trying to develop my overall you know, kind of coherent theses and, and, and vision on how to like address this matter. But I think it really goes to the point that, you know, when you're in the middle, like West Point, everybody asks me, how is West Point? It's hard. And I'm like, yeah, it's hard. It sucks. Yeah, it sucks. And when you're there, you say, oh, it sucks. Well, there's the thing. It's so superficial, this quote unquote suck. Um, I think back to, uh, you know, a typical, especially like freshman year, a typical uh, Saturday night freshman year in West Point. It was me and like, you know, three or four other jerk offs sitting around a, you know, little 15 inch monitor watching just like every movie, every DVD we can get our hands on complaining about how, you know, much li our lives suck right now and how all our friends are out there partying and drinking and getting laid and yada, yada, yada. Um, and, you know, how, how, how much it sucks and how much we're, you know, whatever, sacrificing. And just we'd have these little bitch sessions. But you want to know the truth? You know, after we were done bitching, you know, those conversations, that, like, intimate hanging out, especially while sober, um, I mean, those, I, those experiences are infinitely more valuable like, than, say, my business school experience where there was massive amounts, you know, like of drinking and socializing. But you just, you know, and, and, and there were people, don't get me wrong, there were people at my business school that did uh, do more of a more intimate thing. But, you know, I didn't know any better, to be honest. And I think, again, that's why I struggled because I never got really intimate, you know, with, with a group there. But, um, but uh, yeah. You know, I figured, okay, this is what I didn't experience at West Point, and this is kind of what everybody else is doing, so I'm just going to, you know, booze it and party and yada, yada, yada. And it really, you know, after the fact, it, it almost depresses me thinking about the times that should have been fun and just warms my heart thinking about sitting around a, a, a little tiny little monitor um, with, you know, four or five of the other greatest human beings you'll ever meet in your life, um, even if you are just crying, complaining about something. Um, you know, for a little bit, because again, in, in the grand scheme of things, the complaints were very minor. I honestly think West Point is one of the happiest um, 
you, you know, other than <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to be fully honest. I think, I mean, at least for, what's that? Are you laughing about that? <laughs> oh, no, I was sneezing. Oh, I was trying that. to hold it in. Sorry. <laughs> so uh, I, I honestly think now I, I'm going to say for there, there are folks there. And especially I think the female experience is a lot different. I think it's getting a little bit better. And I know that there are specific challenges. So it might not have been the happiest place for, for, for a lot of my sisters there at West Point. But um, uh, I know in general, I think, um, you know, be, even though it looks on the surface like it sucks, it's one of the happiest places out there because you're going through this experience with, with you know, other individuals. You're all going through the suck together, you know, and that's why the military, you know, these, these bonds formed through hardship are just, are just so incredibly special. They, they go back, I think, to our, like, basic tribal instincts as humans. You know, like your tribe, you know, you form those bonds through hardship. And if you wouldn't participate in the hardship, you know, you were not part of that tribe anymore. Uh, shunning. I mean, that was the biggest thing, like the worst thing that can happen. It wasn't, you know, in today's society is it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's very different. But, um, you know, again, this this shared hardship. So you go that. I mean, it reflects there, reflects in Ranger School, reflects in the military, reflects on sports teams. Certainly. And that's why, again, veterans and sports teams, again, physical shared hardship. On uh, mental shared hardship. I mean, uh, the the mental hardship of of probably almost attaining some kind of goal. You know, especially in sports and coming so close and finishing short, or you know, all kinds of other things, or trying to you know get to the, um, you know, trying to get to the next level in your sport, trying to go pro and and coming so close and not getting there. Yeah, you know, I'm not gonna from a military folks. I'm not comparing that. You know, as as that is extreme as some of the stuff we go through, but you know. From a relative personal and neither basis. am I. I'm not trying to make that comparison. Oh yeah, no, but but yeah. I'm saying still, like from a you know in the moment, from a relative personal basis. I mean, you know, all the all emotions are essentially the same thing, and um, so those people do struggle with that. You know, a lot of athletes struggle with that. So now all of a sudden you're out on your own, um, and you don't have. I mean, even if you don't have the hardships, uh, you would actually rather prefer, I think, subconsciously to have these shared hardships just to have a closer relationship with with other humans and i think um you know that's why a lot of uh, you know a lot of folks out there when you get out um uh, you know struggle struggle and people it's a downward spiral not the more folks um kind of feel this way the more they retreat inside and the less then they start interacting with other people and it compounds it and i know i'll be honest i'm the first person i do this all the time and i have to and, and when i get hurt this is the struggle I have is when, you know, when I'm out of my leg, the thing is it, it, it becomes so onerous and physically difficult. Uh, and especially if I have any other responsibilities to make the time to, to, you know, be involved with other people and to kind of help other people. Um, it, uh, it, you know, it, it, it compounds that. And that's, you know, a, a struggle I personally deal with. And something though that cannabis, you know, you know, when used right now, that I guess, especially I know how to use it. I'm not saying it's a panacea for, you know, a solution for all problems. But, you know, once you use it right and in conjunction with, you know, therapy and with, with actually, you know, having a, a solid friend and peer group, you know, that, that's, that's where it, you're actually going to get a good benefit. And that's how you start healing. So, yeah, my recommendation, I mean, first and foremost is, is always, I say volunteering, is, is, you know, giving up of yourself for others for no other benefit but, but for them, for the other person. Um, Cause I think that really, I mean, I did that, uh, that hackathon this past week. Uh, I don't want to say, Oh, I did it just to, you know, I mean, you know, be some kind of, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I did it really the, the whole point there was to hopefully help 
help someone else and help serve somebody else. And, and I'm really proud. I think I did get a little lucky, but I found somebody that, uh, you know, was able to really help. Um, so, you know, doing things like that. And again, just finding your new tribe, finding a group of individuals and find a group of individuals that, that challenge you in, in some way, whether it's, you know, you're, you're, you're joining a bike club or something, um, you know, join the one that they actually push each other and they maybe even get a little bit competitive. Um, Join. I'm trying to think of uh, uh, other kind of examples off the top of my head. Well, I know, like, for I had a similar thing, like, in my transition to life after sports. And when I found CrossFit, that was like mm -hmm. my new tribe in Washington, D.C. when I was going to grad school. Um, so I, I know exactly what you're saying. People who push you, people who are like, yeah, there for you and you go out with them. And yeah. Yeah. There has to be some element of struggle. And CrossFit actually is a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, uh, example. I know a lot of veterans who have healed or and have had success or you know have kept kept at least feeling you know like they're part of something through crossfit and i know i i, I do crossfit uh when i can i used to you know have an actual uh, gym down when i live in the south bay and uh unfortunately now but fortunately actually i have a coast guard base near me coast guard base so the best because they always have these amazing gyms uh they have good gyms and really good px's uh even though the px's are small um like because they they help serve the community but the, What's a PA? Oh, it's uh, like a, basically a store. It's like a, a target, the target on uh, on base. It's like a general kind of um, oh, okay. department store that post exchange it's called. So, uh, so Coast Guard get gyms are always great because, yeah, they have, especially they, they, the gyms, they're always huge and really well uh, equipped, but there's just not that many people on the Coast Guard base. So you're usually able to uh, actually be able to work out fairly freely. Uh, so I try to take advantage cool. of that. And they have a CrossFit room. Cool. Uh, so I just have a couple more questions before we wrap up the interview. Mm -hmm. So this one's like more like army tactic kind of thing. So I remember earlier in the interview, you said, you know, how you, you try to uh, recognize and mitigate risks. Mm -hmm. So like in the army, so how do you approach that in the military and how can like, I'm thinking in terms of like sports, health and safety and making sports safer to play. Yeah. So like what's the process in the military and how can that be translated like to the sports world, like football, for example. <laughs> See, the process. So you know, there actually is a codified, defined process, you know, a risk assessment you do in the military. And you know, it's funny. I actually have not thought about doing a risk assessment. I think since I got hurt, which is kind of funny. But you actually have to go through identify risks. So this is a this is actually a kind of codified, you know, structured exercise that people go through uh, in these risk assessments. Any leader in the military. Uh, when talking about a mission, I mean, sometimes you, sometimes literally a risk assessment is, you're supposed to do one for every single mission, is literally a quick verbal, like, here are the big things to look out for. But when you actually have a, a, a long plan, like a deeply planned mission, there is a whole section, like appendix, basically, again, if my memory served me correctly, for, uh, for these different types of risk assessments. Um, so yeah, big, I mean, that's the, the technical way it's done in the military. Um, Gosh, I think, you know, thinking about how practically it, it, it's done, uh, you know, risk assessments are just, you know, one of the, the, the I'm always the most, in my opinion, the most important principle of patrolling. Well, you can say security, but I think common sense actually kind of, there's, there's five of them. Uh, and common sense is, I think, kind of lends itself to the others. And uh, so using common sense um, and listening to those with experience. Uh, so how that kind of translates and any kind of risk is whenever you're doing uh, 
anything in life, again, always always go back to common sense. I mean, I unfortunately I'm a little bit uh, negligent or not negligent, uh, poor in common sense at times it seems. But um, uh, you know, try to just take a second and look at the second and third order effects if you have the time of, of every decision you're making. And to really kind of mitigate the risk if you have more time um, and the ability to is not only use that common sense, but, you know, that's why folks try, you should have mentors, formally or even informally mentors, people with experience that you can bounce uh, ideas or challenges off of uh, that, um, you know, that kind of help to help mitigate, help identify and then not only identify risk, but identify how to mitigate them also. All right, I like it. I'm going to, I think I might have my, my intern for the summer try to put up a, a risk assessment for like a, a football game and see like what that would look yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting that, I mean, maybe there are informal systems of that being done, but you know, I've never heard of a formal system of that. And through, so yeah, there's, there's, you know, task specific risk assessments, uh, you know, that are typically what we do in the military, but then, you know, they're also kind of in the military and the, you know, the civilian world program is essentially risk assessments. So that's, you know, that's how you would look at, you know, the game of football is you look at all the possible risks. You look at, you know, this is also in finance too. look at all the risks, look at the expected value and you know, basically the um, the chance of that risk happening by how devastating it is. You find out this kind of expected value and you plug it into, you know, some people don't like kind of trying to quantify human things and uh, but I think, you know, data, it's going to be at least helpful to inform you as you can plug it into equation and say, hey, you know, this risk, the risk of, again, CTE uh, is this based on what we're doing now. How do we, you know, find mechanisms to mitigate that? I mean, I'm going to I'm going to plug because I know you talked to, uh, you know, you talked to some of the folks, but it turns out uh, cannabidiol, especially and, and THD, too, ideally, you know, at certain percentages, um, probably enough where you don't even really get high you could if you're an athlete this is actually something that could help mitigate uh you know brain issues because cannabis is an extremely powerful neuroprotective i actually met a gentleman uh recently who has huntington's who is has lived a substantially longer time than um he was basically given well at least function has had functioned longer time because of daily cannabis use um you know, the proof's in the pudding right there. So, you know, that was my little plug for cannabis and in, in sports there. But yeah, looking at, hey, if, you know, if people are going to get hit this way, um, you know, what, what effect does that have? What's the likelihood of a, not just a, a short-term injury, but a long-term injury? And here's the thing. I mean, I, I think for the longest time, you know, uh, you know, there was such a premium on building, you know, the business, whether it's the NFL or other sports, but I think it's particularly endemic in the NFL. Um, you know, and focused on the, you know, getting as close to a true gladiatorial combat as possible, which, yes, you know, has a lot of entertainment value. But on the negative side, um, you know, folks are going to get hurt and you're seeing the results of, of trying to get bigger, faster, stronger, harder, more gladiatorial, uh, you know, higher impacts. And um, the thing is, nowadays, in the past, uh, the kind of way it was structured, you would try to get folks who had really no alternative um, uh, than to take these risks and play the game that way because, you know, maybe they're right, like boxing and all that. Exactly. Like there are alternative options in life. Let's say you're a young kid who, you know, doesn't have much, uh, you know, doesn't have much resources to draw on and you're fortunate enough to have this ability. 
Well, the thing is now athletes are starting to realize that, you know what, um, and I, I know a lot of football players, uh, you know, are realizing, hey, I don't want to play in the NFL. Like, I just want, you know, you're hearing this from, like, I think high school and college players. Like, I'm going to go the, I want to get a football scholarship so I can actually go to school, you know, and learn something. And then, yeah, I love football. Maybe I'll try to play in the NFL, but I'm going to be really careful. Now, you've seen so far, I mean, it's just people who might be a little bit more privileged than others who have that option of, you know, I think there was a gentleman from the 49ers who said, I'm, I'm done. Um, yeah, Chris Borland. Yeah, Chris Borland. Um, you know, it's controversial, but so like Ricky Williams, and the story of Ricky Williams is is really interesting, especially now, like, you know, as, as I'm in the industry and I see, uh, you know, the healing properties, but I also, you know, see more of the dynamic. And I don't know him personally, and I've never spoken to him, but, um, uh, you know, just based on what he said, I, I think a lot of us, especially me, and again, this is like kind of this is this is West Point Ryan. This is even high school Ryan with the with the cannabis whole thing, um, the stigma or demonization. But I remember saying, this, I can't believe this guy is giving up so much of his future because he can't stop smoking weed. I think he went on TV said, so I can't stop smoking weed, and I, I couldn't understand it. Now I, I I can understand it. And I actually respect the guy for for taking a stand against you know the kind of system and the NFL and stuff and. And I know there's, you know, it's a lot more complicated than that, but, uh, um, but yeah, but yeah, again, another uh, person, again, looking at how to, how to mitigate their risk there. So. Cool. So speaking of mitigating risk, I wanted to touch on this before we, we closed mm -hmm. out, you had mentioned before about intramural tackle football yeah. at West Point. Uh -huh. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, how did that, how did that work? So this is funny. So at West Point, every, every, every I think it's every cadet's an athlete or every student's an athlete. But I would say every cadet's an athlete and every athlete's a cadet or something out of fact. Um, uh, yeah, you had to play a sport. So you had to play intramural sport, a club-level sport, or for those, we called ourselves slugs because we didn't, you know, uh, play one of these big, big-shot sports. We kind of just slugged it around the, the, the campus, you know, after, after classes. <laughs> we, we, we'd do intramural sports. And what's really funny is so each you had a fall season, a spring season, I think they might even be like a short winter season, and you had like maybe six or seven different sports. And um for, for the fall, one of them was football. And uh and it was full pad. It was eight on eight, it was full pad. Um and the thing was with West Point is like these intramurals, because there was it was an overall competition of which company can win the most. Uh, you know, companies have all these different metrics they compete on, some are academic, some are athletic. Um we were much more academically inclined, I think, overall as a company. But um, we did actually, we were like brigade vests in academics for a couple of uh, a couple of semesters in a row. But um, our football team, what you would do is you would stack, you know, based on your, your, your population of intramural players, you would stack certain teams and, you know, leave other certain teams kind of negligent. So you would go up against one week a, a team of like, all kids who played football, some even on the, the West Point team that were just either didn't want to play anymore because they couldn't for academics, or honestly, at that time, a lot of kids just, I, I know kids that left the team and, um, and planned on, and this is Todd Berry days. I don't think anyone in West Point in football is going to complain about me complaining about Todd Berry, but uh, it drove a lot of people from the team. And I know people that had quit the team anticipating on quitting West Point to go play somewhere else uh, that could, they could have played somewhere else. And then just that camaraderie, that tribal, that, that brotherhood, and that, you know, the, the sibling, sister, or whatever, kind of kept them at West Point, you know? So they, they, they quit their sport, but they stayed at West Point. Um, so you'd, you'd, you'd have teams stacked with folks like that. Um, 
and, and then you'd have teams. I, I had a game once where I, I actually, I touched, I carried the ball six times and I didn't get tackled. I mean, I had four touchdowns and like two extra points. And it's because the team, I'm not that good. You know, I don't, I just want to make that clear. Like I'm not that good of a football player, but, uh, <laughs> um, but that, you know, it's a nice ego boost. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, so, and it was, it, it was actually a lot of fun. Uh, I played, uh, you're only supposed to play one sport for two years, tops. I kind of weaseled it and played all four years. You know, I, I kind of liked it. It was like a game. You had like two or three week preseason, like, or like train it or, or practices of two practices a week. And then you had a game a week and a practice a week for, you know, like six or seven weeks. And um, I'll never forget, we, uh, my team, my, my, I think it was my senior year, we lost barely on a freak play to another team in our little, like, let's say our division in overtime. Uh, and basically it was like, it was either our team or their team was like, whoever won that game, even though this was kind of early on, like you could tell was going to win the, the, the school championships. Uh, okay. So it's still one of my, like those painful losses for me. <laughs> that's, that's, that blows my mind though. That's like an intramural yeah. sport, sport, but it seems cool. Like, especially for someone who was an athlete that you still get to like play sports, Yeah, you know, Com- it's required at West Point to like play yeah. sports still. So in, that's in cool. fact, there's one other thing I know we're out of time, but like one other kind of thing I want to shout out is that is it's called the Goat Engineer game. So every uh, Army Navy game, the week leading up to the game, and it's always the last game in the, in the college football, the regular season college football. You know, it's like mandated by right. NCAA. So this is always like the first second week of December. Uh, you know, that week there's all kinds of big activities around campus. Of course, we like burn some effigy of like a ship or something. You know, I, I can't I can't remember now, but one thing that you have is uh, amongst the junior class, you have the good engineer game. And that's where they literally find the median GPA. And everybody who is higher than that is an engineer, is on the engineer team, whether you're an engineer or not. And everybody on the lower side of the median is on the GOAT team. So uh, they, uh, you know, that's how they kind of like decide teams. And um, uh, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's full pads. And that's 11 on 11, full football game. So you have people that, you know, haven't played football in years. Uh, maybe, the, maybe some have played in murals, some haven't. Uh, and you actually get rugby players, which every every other year they kind of they change whether rugby players can play or not. Um, but it's a pretty competitive, fun game. So playing in the Goat Engineer game is actually one of my uh, the fun highlights of my West Point career. And yeah, I actually know people who I played with on that team that then went and, and actually walked on their senior year because we got a new coach and actually got some burn during the, uh, during the regular season. You're making West Point sound like more and more fun as you go. <laughs> Again, when I look back on it now, I didn't get, I was able to stay out of trouble. Um, it was, it was hard. It was intense, but you want the truth. It was probably one of the best four years of my life. Yeah, that's cool, man. Um, okay. Last question. Um, I asked this to everyone. Uh, what's your definition of toughness? You know, it's, and it's funny, it's changed over the years and, it, and it's changing now. And, and maybe it's, it's uh, taking on a little bit more of, of, of a perspective of someone who's seen a lot more of the world. Uh, and who's who's engaged on a deeper level, people, you know, both outside the U.S. and even within the U.S. of different socioeconomic levels and, um, and uh, you know, backgrounds and, and lots in life. And I really think toughness is ultimately the convictions to take a stand. Again, I'm, I'm trying to, without being cliche, um, really to stand up. We're not, not even so much. I mean, it can't just be what you think is right. It has to be what, you know, you've, you've analyzed and you've gone through and you've seen things. I guess toughness is actually toughness is the willingness 
to, first of all, allow yourself to be vulnerable enough to see the world from somebody else's and open enough to see the world from somebody else's perspective. And I think a lot of times people don't realize in order to do that, you have to be vulnerable to open yourself up to that. So now once you actually are able to see all the sides of an issue, is to then kind of, is to then take a stand, a hard stand on, you know, not what you believe is right, but by what, you know, through this investigative process where you've actually been open, and as long as you're honest with yourself that you've been open, um, go through that process and now kind of figure out what the right answer is and then stand by it and, and fight for it. Uh, even if it's, if it's unpopular and if even people are, especially your and the hardest thing is when your peer group, um, uh, I, I don't want to get into politics, but I make it clear. I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of the current administration. I think it, it's not so much political. I think it's more moral ethical, but, um, uh, you know, to, for folks. And I, I know there's a lot of folks and actually it's being led by the military. Um, who are taking a stand against, uh, uh, even if they, you know, politically agree on, and, and see the advantages of, of, you know, this potential administration, um, you know, they're not going to stand for, for, for an erosion of, of, you know, of certain moral ethical kind of norms that, that exist out there. And I do apologize because that was political, but <laughs> I mean, it was an example. If you feel that way, it's an example, um, that, that I like, I think I like to use. Cool. I mean, everyone's entitled to an opinion, so I, I welcome all opinions on the podcast. So um, c can you finish off by telling us about some of the organizations you're a part of and where people can find you on social media? Yeah, absolutely, Kevin. Again, thanks so much. I know if I, 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 I actually don't like talking that much, so when I have to talk, I wind up talking too much, so I do apologize, but I appreciate you kind of uh, uh, letting me go on a few times here. But, yeah, so the organization... No, I, I, I love it. Yeah, so the organization part of, um, we met... Uh, through a, uh, or while well, I was working for an organization, well, I worked for an organization, CAMO, Commonwealth Alternative Medicinal Options. It's a Western Pennsylvania-based uh, organization, and we were seeking to, uh, we applied for a Pennsylvania cannabis license to both produce and distribute in dispensaries. Um, in Western Pennsylvania, we already won a hemp license, um, and hemp is another kind of industry that I'm really excited about because it's, you know, I can't see anything controversial about hemp. Uh, and again, it's an incredible product that I think could put a lot of Americans to work and uh, uh, especially a lot of veterans to work and you get a lot of uh, amazing products from. So that's what we're trying to do is just advocate for, for medical cannabis uh, with, with, you know, we have a bunch of veterans on the team, but not just for veterans, but for the whole population of Western Pennsylvania, especially when people myself have seen, um, you know, opiates, how destructive they can be. And then when I come to a state like California here and just being involved in the cannabis industry, uh, and seeing what it's doing for veterans and for people on opiates and seeing the reductions we've had, um, both in direct opiate use and also, you know, in ways of helping folks get off opiates. Uh, you know, that's what we're really going to try to bring uh, to Western Pennsylvania and jobs, uh, medicine for not just vets, but everybody suffering uh, out there. Um, and just educating folks on that this stuff, you know, isn't that bad. So that's Camo, uh, Warrior Rising, which this weekend we had a great fundraiser, Cecil fundraiser. I want to thank... Uh, a lot of individuals up in uh, up in Napa, California. Uh, a lot of individuals, a lot of great patriots up there came out to support Warrior Rising, which is all about veteran entrepreneurship. Uh, www.warriorrising.org. Go on there if you're a veteran or want to donate. Uh, we do a bunch of things. We, any veteran that comes to us that's interested in entrepreneurship at any level, we try to work with. At the lowest touch level, it's directing them uh, towards resources and maybe hooking them up with a mentor. Uh, or two in the field, which they're looking to do, and or if they're even trying to determine whether entrepreneurship is right for them or not, helping them make that decision. Um, 
We also uh, have a, uh, we, we partner with Kiva.org, so we can do micro-lending to a lot of veteran-owned companies. Uh, and at the highest level, we do direct get grants. So we sit down, we look at veterans who need a, a who we see can, uh, can take a direct cash infusion and actually get some kind of positive, substantial ROI for their company that will allow for growth, uh, ideally long-term, again, to perpetuate the hiring of veterans and giving back to Warrior Rising. So we've given out, I think it will be close to $100,000 and direct grants, and that's only after, hey, we have to see your business plan. We have to see exactly how this money is getting spent. You know, we do the due diligence with you to make sure that the ROI uh, on this is, is, you know, what you make sense for what you're predicting. Uh, and we look over your execution plan to make sure that, you know, when you get this money, you know exactly how you're going to spend it. You're going to spend it right. Um, so there's a lot of due diligence there, but we, we do that. And then finally, um, there is Field. So my company, Field, um, started it in November when I finally made the decision to jump into cannabis. I looked at the biggest issue, uh, the biggest business issue in the space right now, and a lot of it goes towards the most costliest part of production, which is called trimming. It's the finishing of the product from where it's grown before it gets you know, wholesale to either direct to dispensaries or to manufacturers who make edibles and, and, um, and extracts and things like that. Um, it's a uh, it's a very labor-intensive process. It's um, very hard to automate, and it's very hard to find these folks in a uh, industry where there's still, um, you know, it's still illegal, federally legal, and people don't want to put themselves out there. And again, it's a job that you don't hire for full time. It's more of a part time. You know, you need these folks for a week at a time or a couple weeks at a time. So what Field is doing is just creating a uh, a very discreet kind of interface platform where uh, people who grow cannabis, of which there are actually about 100,000 in the U.S. who grow can uh, more cannabis than they consume. So basically, you know, and that's everything from, hey, I have an extra pound I kind of sell to my buddies uh, illegally to, you know, larger regulated manufacturers in like Colorado who are producing hundreds of pounds a month uh, for the adult use market. Um, so, yeah, we, we help those folks, again, find this, uh, find this hard to engage labor force uh, again, through this through this discrete platform, there's a lot of other kind of uh, features in there. But uh, yeah, we're we're excited. We're going to launch uh, hopefully at the end of summer in preparation for the big fall cannabis harvest that happens in North Car Northern California every year, uh, where a good portion of the world's cannabis is actually produced between or harvested between September and November. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah, so I was going to say like a like a seasonal employment. Kind of thing. Yeah, so it's both seasonal. So there's one when, when you're dealing with outdoors, not to get too too much in the canvas, but you know, there's one huge outdoor harvest because outdoor crops are growing like any other crop. You plant them in the spring, they grow all year, and then you harvest them in the fall. Cannabis is a perennial, or I can't remember the word, it, it dies every year, you have to replant it. Um, oh, okay. But uh, so that's outdoors. And then, of course, there's a lot of you know, indoor grows where you have, uh, depending on your operations, four to six harvests per year. So either every two to three months or, or even sooner, um, if you're able to. And so then those folks are just needed for a couple of days every couple of months. Great. Yeah, so I'll link all those up in the show notes so people can access those and get more info if they're interested. Right. And yeah, I thank you a lot for taking your time to share your story and tell, teach us more about cannabis and transitioning to a life after uh, a military mm -hmm. career or sports. And I it was very mentally stimulating for me and especially to share your knowledge with the institutions that you've 
earn degrees from it. Uh, it's an honor to have you on the show. Well, that, honestly, Kevin, thanks so much. Uh, it's an honor to be on here. I really love what you're doing. Um, you, great podcast. You've had great guests, really relevant uh, content. So again, I, I appreciate you asking me to, to be on here. Um, and yeah, thank everybody for listening. And if anybody has questions, uh, again, especially about cannabis, whether you're military or not, whether you're an athlete, hey, what is this industry? I mean, I've done a lot uh, because of my policy background on, and I do a lot of advocacy and work with the uh, large organizations for cannabis advocacy. I mean, I, I kind of have an idea of what the landscape looks like. So yeah, interested in the business, interested in using it therapeutically, athlete, veteran, or, or just you know anybody else, uh, feel free to reach out to me. And where's the best place to reach out to you? Uh, best place is uh, actually uh, my, my email, and you can actually email my company email, ryan at fieldapp.co. Okay. I'll, I have your card, so I'll, I'll link that up too. Yeah. All right. Well, Kevin, again, thank you so much. Uh, it was so great talking to you. I know I talked way longer than I probably should have, so thanks for putting up with that. And if you're still listening right, right that's now. What, that's, <laughs> that's what podcasts yeah. are all about. So. <laughs> well, if people are still listening right now, thank you for listening through my whole, uh, uh, again, my little uh, – as I, as I kind of weave my way through, uh, through the past 15 or 20 years of my life. I appreciate you sticking around. <laughs> Retired Captain from the U.S. Army, Ryan Miller, folks. Thanks, Ryan. No problem. Thanks so much.